But, you know, the same thing happened at the old rock household in this church as well. They kind of, like, call you out while they're preaching, you know. Now, there's something wrong with this service Tonight. By the way, the hiss you're hearing in this clip is actually the rattlesnakes that were in boxes up behind the Bible stand. There's a spirit just come in to try to ruin this service. Come on, why don't we all stand up? Come on, we, we can take authority over this thing. I didn't come here to waste my time. Behind the pulpit on the platform up at the front of the church, there's a door. And the snakes came in from there. Me and Morgan, we were certainly on our way to hell after four hours of this preaching. References made, I mean, numerous references made to us like the whole time we're there. The guy calls out to the guy on the very back row. He's like, hey, brother, go over there to that wall and pull that breaker. I ain't just trying to make a podcast, man. I'm seriously trying to make this a uh, document. This ain't this ain't a document. Like, this is, this is good for the podcast, but this don't help me none, dude. My main goal still is to have a document at the end of this, and that was a swing and a miss. But I never thought of it, but how foolish of me to think I wasn't going to swing and miss on some, you know? The frustration you just heard came at the culmination of a four-day road trip. Ex-preacher turned folk artist and songwriter Abe Partridge embarked upon, where he visited serpent handling sites in four days across Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, and North Carolina. Armed with a $750 Sony handheld recorder and an open heart, he went to capture this raw Americana music for what he calls, quote, a document. This is not a podcast about religion. This is not a podcast about the five signs of Mark 16, of handling serpents, drinking harmful substances, or other acts of great faith. This is a podcast about songs, songs of them that believe the signs, that have never before taken their rightful place on the shelves of Americana. And perhaps that's because they are songs about the five signs of Mark 16, of handling serpents, drinking harmful substances, and other acts of great faith. Today's field recordings were captured at Old Rock House Holiness Church in Section, Alabama. This is Alabama Astronaut, hosted by Farrell Gibbs. So there you are. You're all nestled in tonight to your Section, Alabama motel room. How is it? Yeah, dude, it's just a little roadside joint, you know. I'm in, like, backwoods Alabama here. If I knew the things that have happened on this bed, I wouldn't be laying on it, you know? <laughs> All right, let's start at the back and go forward. You got asked to sing tonight? Yeah, the guy just comes up to me, you know, and uh, he's passing the offering plate, and I always kind of feel obligated to put something in the plate, you know, so I do. He looked over at me and said, Hey, would you like to sing tonight? And I said, uh, no, you know, I said, oh, you don't want me to sing, buddy, you know. And, and then he kind of, you know, chuckled and he walked off. But, I mean, I think he was sincere. I think I was actually asked to go sing, which is bizarre to me because I'm usually preached right into hell every service, you know. Like, it's so odd that the guy would want me to come sing. Like, you know, when I pastored, uh, you certainly wouldn't ask the heathen that comes visits your church every month to come sing, you know. It's just weird, man. You're a national traveling solo singing act. Why didn't you get up there and sing? Well, number one, I ain't got no clue what I would sing. Number two, you go sing right beside where the snake is, and uh, I ain't into that. I'm trying to keep my distance between me and the snakes. You know the words to Little David Play Your Heart now, man. You could tear that song up. <laughs> Dude, would they, <laughs> would they have went nuts if I would have went up there and said, Little David, play
they would have went bonkers. They probably would have got out the torches and got the snake out. <laughs> and I would have ran off the stage back to the back. But uh, it's just weird, man. Like, when I'm in there, I can't figure out where I stand. It's like if I'm just the center, you know, in here with the long-haired, you know, guy with a recorder that's going to hell. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'll be that guy, but then you want me to come sing, you know? And then they'll call me brother. It's like, man, if I'm your brother, why are you telling me I'm going to hell all the time? This happened after the whole uh, staring down thing, though. Okay, what do you mean the whole staring down thing? We will return to Abe in his backwoods motel room in just a moment to hear more about the whole staring down thing. But first, allow us to travel back in time to the very first time Abe visited a serpent handling church. It was back in the summer of 2020, before there was a Sony handheld recorder, the old rock house Holiness Church. The world of serpent handling can hypnotize those who enter because it's full of stories, stories that often come all at once. Since the serpent handling lore is often passed down by way of their own oral history, especially through the retelling of stories, sometimes the storyteller's narratives line up exactly, sometimes they diverge, and sometimes they intersect only in certain parts, like a winding road that occasionally crisscrosses through an Appalachian mountain pass. Here is the same serpent handling story told from two totally different but fact-laden perspectives. From the University of Washington in Seattle, upon reflection. Welcome to the Old Rock House Holiness Church, site of the most famous snake bite of all time, Reverend John Wayne Brown, better known as Punkin, bitten by a yellow timber rattler and died. Originally from Cott County, Tennessee, the bite happened when he was visiting Preacher at Old Rock House. We will talk more about Punkin' Brown later, but remember when Abe mentioned the book Salvation on Sand Mountain? It was written by Dennis Covington, New York Times reporter sent to cover a crazy murder trial that happened in Sand Mountain, Alabama, an outcome that would lead to the birth of Old Rock House Holiness Church. Hello and welcome to Upon Reflection, I'm Marsha Alvar. In 1991, journalist Dennis Covington was hired by the New York Times to cover a highly unusual murder trial in Alabama. Covington, who says he has always been drawn to danger, describes that journey in his richly detailed and mesmerizing new book, Salvation on Sand Mountain, Snake Handling and Redemption in Southern Appalachia. Welcome to Upon Reflection. Thank you, Marcia. Talk about who was on trial and why. Well, a snake handling preacher by the name of Glenn Summerford was charged with attempting to murder his wife with rattlesnakes. Glenn Summerford, dude, I, mean, I don't know how much you covered him, and I don't know how much we want to, but my God, what a story, dude. Two things before we go any further to alleviate some confusion. First of all, in the next few minutes, you will hear many mentions of two different Summerfords. Billy Summerford? the current preacher of Old Rock House Holiness Church, who Abe recorded last weekend, and Glenn Summerford, the preacher Dennis Covington was sent to cover by the New York Times, who allegedly attempted murder with the church house snakes. It was the subject of the 2020 HBO documentary film called Alabama Snake. The two men are cousins. Also, you may notice that Abe's cell phone reception is a little spotty here. We apologize. Abe is out navigating country roads and desolate hills not to mention cornfields, where there's almost no cell phone reception. On top of all that, this particular segment was never intended for the record. Just a conversation between friends, as Abe animatedly relayed the stories that personalities within the serpent-handling community had told him. You know what told me? That that lady Darlene was sleeping with another serpent-handling preacher, and she faked it all. Since Farrell begged Abe to allow these clips to be in, and since Abe acquiesced, here they are. How many, Abe, believe that? I know three of them that think that. She was wanting out of that relationship with Glenn, and that was her way of doing it. And I was told that a fourth thinks that, but he's no longer here to, to express that opinion. This was a crime that allegedly had occurred not in the church, but in a shed behind their house in Scottsboro, Alabama. Where he kept the snakes. Right, 17 of them rattlesnakes and copperheads. And according to her testimony, he held a gun to her head and forced her to put her hand in the box of snakes. He said, otherwise, I'll put your face in the box and let them bite you there. Glenn Summerford, dude, he ended up going to prison under this thing called Three Strikes, You're Out in Alabama, okay? 
If you commit three felonies, the government just puts you in prison for 99 years. Glenn Summerford was raised in a terrible home, you know, and uh, his stepdad was an army ranger and started teaching Glenn how to fight when he was a kid, teaching him, like, how to kill people, okay? Glenn was always bullied on, too. I think he was half Cherokee Indian as well. And, Farrell, look, I'm just recounting a lot of these details off the top of my head. I'm just telling you the story how I remember it. I think he was about 16, 17 years old. He's in his late teens. Well, he starts basically underground illegal prize fighting, unsanctioned boxing matches. She stuck her hand in, was bitten once. She didn't die. She got very sick. So the next night, he did it again to her. She was bit a second time. Fortunately, he passed out. He was drunk, and she called her sister, who sent an ambulance, and she managed to escape and recovered from the bites. And he was traveling all the way up to Chicago to do these prize fights. Basically, you just go fight against the toughest dude in some town and see how you stack up. That was the way he was actually supporting his family, was through prize fighting. So through, like, prize fighting, you end up making enemies and stuff. So check this out. He has a wife, and he has some kids. He's illegal boxing where he develops an enemy of some kind. One day he's at his house. They're all in the house sweeping. One of his enemies comes and burns his house down. He gets his children and his wife out of the house and they get everybody in the car when he realized his two-year-old girl wasn't in the car and she had that burned up. Reverend Summerford was charged with attempted murder. The New York Times assigned me to cover his trial. I was reluctant at first because it seemed to me that this was just another opportunity for the large metropolitan newspaper to uh, poke fun at the South. But actually, it was the opening for a spiritual journey for me and also a journey into my region. Shortly after that, he ends up finding Jesus. He starts going to a holiness church. Well, the holiness church was white people service in the daytime, black people service come after that. Well, the preacher died. Well, Glenn became the preacher. And the first thing he did was say all black people and white people go to church together. And he had the first integrated holiness church in all of Alabama. Because of that, somebody burned his church down. Two arsonists tried to take him down twice, and then whenever Darlene Summerford, which was his wife, accused him of what he was accused of, that was the third felony. The book Salvation on Sand Mountain records the founding of Old Rock House Holiness Church. That church was founded because Glenn Summerford went to prison, and the people didn't have no church to go to no more, and they found that old building out there, and they started having service. What are your opinions on the Glenn Summerford case? What do you think? A nonviolent criminal who gets into a he said, she said, 20 plus years after his last two offenses. If that isn't a glaringly obvious example of injustice within a legal system, I couldn't imagine. Well, I mean, I can't imagine, but it, it is certainly a fine example. I mean, I hurt for the dude, you know? Could you imagine that, dude? Put yourself in his shoes, man. Even if he did it, he wouldn't have been in there this long. I mean, God, he's been in there. He's going to die in there. As Abe said, Mr. Summerford was given a 99-year sentence based on a habitual offender rule. Only after he read every single book in existence on serpent handling did Abe realize that not one of them, not one single movie, documentary, nor any other piece of media, to his or Farrell's knowledge, mention what Glenn's first two felonies were. Because of this, Abe and Farrell conducted a two-day search of the internet, but no luck. That's when Farrell decided to call the Jackson County Courthouse in Alabama. You have reached the Jackson County Courthouse for the Revenue Commissioner, press one. And got an extremely helpful clerk who showed interest in their mission, particularly because it was based on music. For the circuit clerk's office, press seven. She scoured the basement of the courthouse until she found them. They were found in the paper archives. They never made it to digitalization. The clerk sent Farrell a PDF of the two felonies, and Farrell passed them on to Abe. It looks like he was charged with burglary and grand larceny on the 16th day of August 1967. It looked like he entered a plea of not guilty to the charge of burglary second degree. And then it looks like on the 19th day of September, 
1967, he withdrew his plea of not guilty to the indictment. Looks like he took plea deals, basically. So it looks like he was charged the 16th day of August 1967 with both burglary and grand larceny. He got two felonies for one offense. He got two felonies for, I'm pretty sure, burglary just means that you entered a place that you don't have rights to be in. I think grand larceny is the theft of something over a certain amount of money. Both of these felonies happened at the very same time, and he was charged on the very same day, and he pled guilty on the very same day, and they occurred in 1967. The Darlene Summerford thing, that happened in the 90s. So there's your two felonies. We at Alabama Astronaut would like to thank the clerk sincerely for being such a big help to us. She was not allowed to appear on the podcast, nor be named, but what she did meant a lot to us, and we wish her all the best. I will tell you, the serpent handlers have told me they don't believe that Glenn Summerford was guilty at all. Darlene... She was very comfortable around snakes. In fact, if you read the books, they'll tell you that there was times in Darlene's life where she would carry around her favorite rattlesnake in her purse. She was very, very well familiar with snakes. She would go out to their snake room, and she handled them dangerously. The fact that she was bit in the hand by a rattlesnake doesn't surprise me at all. But she says she did it while Glenn Summerford held the gun to her head. Well, Glenn says he didn't. So basically, it comes down to he says she said the lady didn't die, by the way. She didn't die. She's still alive and well. No one died. And there's a man that's been in prison since the early 90s now. And uh, he's still alive and he's in there. There are people that have actually murdered that don't go to prison that long. You know, he had a 30-plus years of straight and narrow and preaching. It just happens to be the sort of preaching that nobody wants to hear. I mean, there's no way that being the serpent handler didn't affect that. You know what I mean? There's just no way. Well, what about the folks that see the, the new show Alabama Snake on HBO? And they're like, well, he's obviously crazed. He tried to escape from prison like two times. What would you say to that? Brother, if you lock me up for life, brother, I'll... I'll shank you. I'll do whatever I got to do to get out of there, son. I don't want to go to jail. I wasn't cut out to go. I w- I'm not the kind of guy that's made to go to jail. Don't want to go there. I've seen them jail's TV shows that they put on A&E and Discovery and all that stuff, and I just know that that's too much for me. And if, uh, you know, you turn your head on me, son, I'm gone. But I don't find no fault in that. In fact, I find that, I mean, that would be a very sane thing to do, it seems like to me. I was standing in a parking lot outside the Church of Jesus with signs following, listening to this cacophonous music coming out. It sounded like a cross between Salvation Army and Acid Rock. Electric guitars and drums and cymbals, and I had to find out why the handlers did what they did and what it felt like for them. What is their attitude toward Covington? And did he really apologize? Billy Summerford got up there, and I think he called him by name the first time he ever went there and just mentioned how Covington was just after money. We're going to take a look again, as I mentioned, at some slides, and they show various aspects of this religion that you became uh, so much a part of in the course of, of writing this book. This is a uh, brush arbor meeting on top of Sand Mountain. Brush arbors are temporary structures. They were originally uh, intended to give the field hands a place to worship so they wouldn't have to leave the fields for services. Singing songs in the golden hour, copperheads in the Holy Ghost make fire. But when Reverend Summerford's church split after his conviction for attempted murder, some of the members of that church went up on top of Sand Mountain and started meeting out in the open here under this brush arbor. We should mention this is you. That is me. It's hard to believe, but that is me. And that is the largest rattlesnake I ever saw. I held it up. The music started to disappear. I couldn't hear the music anymore. I couldn't see the congregation anymore. Everything seemed to be fading, and I felt like I too was starting to fade, to disappear. At that moment, I understood why the handlers take up serpents, and that is because there's power in the act of disappearing. 
Why do you think it was, Abe, that it was so difficult for us to find those two felonies committed by Glenn Summerford? I think most people, when they cover stuff like this, they're interested in the people as characters, not interested in them as humans. Components of a story that they're able to tell, and it's bizarre, but I think they lose the humanity. They, they forget the humanity of these people and all of their doings. And I mean, I'm not casting stone, but to me, if I'm going to cover the story of a man who was put in prison on three strikes, you're out rule. One of the very first and fundamental facts that I'm going to have presenting my case is going to be those three felonies, not just the one that's sensational. You know what I mean? Guarantee you that if he was a man with means and if he was not a snake handler, things would have went drastically different. The first time Abe visited Old Rock House Holiness Church, he had backup. What is it like to play that blistering music on stage with Abe Partridge? It's like handling a snake for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Garrett, founding member and guitarist of Abe's punk band, The Psych Peas. We met uh, in the Air Force. He was doing orders there. I worked there full time. We ended up hanging out a lot. We ended up going to lunch a lot. We'd kind of scratch around and play some music and, uh, you know, throw around ideas. I've never known anybody like Abe. He still strikes me like that, you know? He's, he's definitely got his own way about thinking of things and one of a kind. Does it surprise you at all that he has developed an interest in snake handling? It does not. <laughs> he has an interest in the obscure, and uh, I think it's important what he's doing. You know, he's, uh, he's documenting an American subculture phenomenon that's historical and won't be around, I don't think, you know, maybe a couple more generations. It doesn't grow larger. You know, I got a chance to go with him to one of the snake handling churches, and that was an interesting experience. I wish I could go. I really do. If it wasn't for COVID, I probably would have maybe gone on this trip. But what were you thinking when you saw it? I wasn't afraid. I'm Abe. Abe, where you from, Abe? From uh, Mobile. Mobile. Yeah. I've been down there. Yeah. I've been church down there. It's the same feeling you get going anywhere for the first time you've never been. But when we got there, the preacher couldn't get to us quick enough. They were very welcoming. Yeah. I've been church down there. If you get a chance, it's definitely worth experiencing. They were very welcoming, and he started right off the bat saying that we wouldn't be in any danger. If the snakes came out, they would be up front. You know, we wouldn't be around it. I'm sure they get people from time to time coming in there just to check them out, you know. Uh, a council building down there and a welcome. Amen. Immediately, I start looking for these human motivations, and they're certainly there. Ready to start church? The floor is just open, and people talk in front of the whole church about what's bothering them, what's on their mind, what's going on with them. All right, has anyone got anything they'd like to say? That lasted at least a half an hour. We got seven people in my apartment at work that's got COVID. You know, whatever they feel guilty about or worried about or stressed about, they get to air that out and uh, it's wide open. That absolution of guilt is just pretty good human motivator for somebody to go there. But the main reason they go there is because they, they grew up in it, I'm sure, because uh, you don't see a lot of people from the outside adopting that subset of beliefs. We have to take a risk. Everybody go to work. You know. oh, they say that COVID's real bad. Let's remember them. Uh, people in my family had uh, COVID. A couple people in my family had COVID. Her dad called on her way to church and asked, there's about four or five members of her family that's got it. My friend of mine, her dad had COVID. He was in the hospital with it. Several of my family got it, and they had a real rough time, but they got over it. As far as the snake handling goes and the, the drinking of the poison, what would motivate somebody to do that? 
as Abe said before, it's not money. <laughs> they don't get money for doing it, but they do get to be the special person for a while. In their subset, that's a big deal. And one thing that we all want, whatever set we belong to, we want to be as high of status that we can be in that set. If you're a musician, you want to be the best. If you're this, you want to be as high as you can go within that framework. And the highest status that you can be within their religious subsect is the handler of the snake. During the sermon, at one point I remember, the preacher repeated over and over, it's holiness or it's hell. And I was like, ah, you know, there's the engine driving this machine right here. You know, <laughs> it definitely seems to be a fear engine of, of beliefs that were, you know, installed since birth. Same problems in this world. Yeah. And that problem will present you, it will come to you. If you drug you, they'll bring you a pill. They'll bring you a joint. If it's whiskey, uh -huh. they'll bring you what you want. If you're a beer drinker, like I used to be, they'll bring you them little pony millers with ice cubes running down the side of them. See, they're not going to bring you something you don't like. If the devil is going to send you a woman, she's going to have the walk. She's going to have the power. That's right. She's going to have the hair flipping back. Because uh -huh. Satan knows how to get to you. Yeah. And there's a lot of these Delilahs in the land. Uh -huh. Amen. There's a lot of Delilahs. There's a lot of music. The music lasted a long time. Like A pointed out afterwards, he's like, you notice none of that's in Walt's time. You know, like any church I grew up going to, it was all three, four and pretty, man. They were <laughs> they were in four, four. They were playing rock and roll time or cut time even sometimes. Mainly played the keys. He was really good on those keys too. When was playing the keys and, and tearing them up, man. He, he's a killer. But he had his shoes off, and uh, he would stick his foot out, and this guy would put a fire under it, and he would just continue to play. This elderly man could successfully front any hard rock band out there. I told Abe, I said, you have no excuse for ever saying you can't. <laughs> I mean, he had to be 80. A very old man just killing it. And it, it sounded very rock and roll. I mean, the kind of church I grew up in, it would have made them very uncomfortable, I would think. They did drink some poison, and that was crazy. I don't know how much they put in there, but the fire was kind of, you know, you can't fake having a fire under your foot. <laughs> and smiling and continuing to play piano while it's happening. Crazy. Yeah, and didn't, didn't miss a lick. Uh, it was pretty unreal. They wanted us to stay afterwards and eat with them and all that. They were very welcoming. One guy wanted to go snake hunting with Abe, the guy that was his contact there. I would probably go back. I was actually going to go back with Abe recently, but I was busy and I couldn't make it. The second time Abe visited Old Rock House Holiness Church, he took back up once again. Cage fighting, skydiving, adrenaline junkie, Willie Moe. Hello. Hey, man, how's it going? Hey, not too bad. Abe tells me I'm supposed to call you Willie Moe. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a nickname he gave me years ago. <laughs> he gave you that nickname? Oh, yeah, yeah. I see you like skydiving and thrill-seeking, and Abe tells me you're a cage fighter, maybe somebody who seeks things out that can be dangerous or fringe-like or exciting. So y'all went to the snake handling service on... Friday night. Right. Today's day. Today's day. Yep, Friday, October 23rd, Old Rock House Holiness Church. Participating in that snake handling sermon that you went to, how did that rank in order of the thrilling things that you've seen and experienced? It was one of the strangest experiences that I think I've had. It's pretty hard to describe. Just see people up there holding torches to their faces and handling copperheads and rattlesnakes. It's pretty high up there in the experiences I've had. I'm sure you're trying to figure out what would motivate them to hold a snake. What, did you have any conclusions? 
Yeah, I actually thought about it a lot afterwards, and I tried to put it into a way that would make sense for myself. If I took these people to like a modern day metal show or whatever, and they saw people running around in a mosh pit, they'd probably feel the same exact way as I felt being in their church, seeing them take up the circle. I think everybody has their own sort of release, and that's just how they choose to do it. I mean, it doesn't make sense to most people, but to them it does. And I don't know how they come to that conclusion, but... I don't know. The preacher gets up there and uh, he was saying that there are people here having one night stands with Jesus. Uh, he was clearly talking to us and talking about how that's not going to work and how we're going to go to hell only having one night stands with Jesus. <laughs> See, that's what people are doing for the churches. Hey, they're using the church for one or two nights uh, or one or two and they're not faithful yeah. to the house of God. Yeah, what? that's right. That's hey, right if you ain't faithful to him, when they were playing songs, I guess their members weren't being as energetic as usual because we were there. So the piano guy gets on the mic. There's division amongst us tonight. Uh -huh. There's a spirit that's come in to try to ruin this service. Uh -huh. I mean, we got some people that need help tonight. Yeah. We need physical help, spiritual help. Amen. God, let's pray right now. And he's like, oh, guys, the good Lord has had me out here rolling around on the floor, so don't be scared by these outside spirits. And he starts speaking in tongues, and <laughs> we just got caught out pretty hard by that guy. I don't care how stupid it looks. I remember one night 15 years ago, the Lord had me roll all the way across this floor. And then after he had me roll, I begin to skip like a school kid through this church house. By the foolish things, God will compound the lies when we obey him. Amen. Come on, bro, Tony, sing again. I got just what I wanted. What jumped out to you that night? Do you remember anything that really particularly struck you? Maybe towards the end when they decided to cut the lights for no real reason. So it, it was the end of the service, and there was only a few of us left inside. And uh, the other guys were taking the snakes to the back where I guess they keep them. And the preacher was sitting up by his podium, talking to the guy in the front. And he's like, hey, man, flip that breaker right there. And me and Abe were just sitting like middle ways in the church still. And I was just like looking at him like, what is this guy talking about flipping off breakers and stuff? The guy in the front is like, what, you want me to flip this breaker? And the preacher's like, yeah, yeah, just hit that breaker. And all the lights go off. And me and Abe just like kind of grab each other's arm, like, what's going on? Man? We're about to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, like five or 10 seconds pass, and the guy flips it back on. Me and Abe just sitting like, what just happened? Like, what are they doing? <laughs> but we were about to run out of there, though. <laughs> uh, me and Willie Moe are sitting there, and uh, Brother Billy gets up at the pulpit. He says, hey, brother in the back, get up there and go turn that breaker off in that breaker box. You know, I looked at Willie Moe. I was like, man, what's going on? And uh, that guy got up there, and he couldn't believe that the preacher was asking him to do it. And uh, he went over there, and he cut the breakers off. You're in the middle of a cornfield. You went from being in a church in the middle of a cornfield to being in a dark room that you could not even see your hand in front of your face. And I grabbed Willie Moe's leg, and I said, brother, let's go. <laughs> and just as we started, he's like, okay, flip it back on. And we looked around, and, and we were like, what was that about, man? I mean— Honestly, I don't know what that was about. What do you think it was about? He's a playful dude, man. I think he was just joking around, yeah. And finally, on his most recent trip to Old Rock House Holiness Church, just this past weekend, when he called Farrell from his Section Alabama motel room to talk about the whole staring down thing. This time, when he pulled up to Old Rock House Holiness, for the first time ever, Abe was all by himself. So the first time you ever pulled up to this church, I mean, you had to be scared, right? Tell the people listening along what it felt like. Prior to ever going, I had been familiar with it only through the videos that were available on the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga archive. In the back of that book, in the House of the Serpent Handler, I had seen a picture of Old Rock House in this church, and I also had directions she put directions to those churches in the back of her book. Well, when I first went there, I took a picture of that page, and it was on my phone. 
because I had no idea if my GPS coordinates would be able to land me there. I took Dave with me on the first time I ever went. I don't have any recordings from that time because, you know, then I was just going for the spectacle of it all. So I drive up and I pick up Dave Garrett. You get off on the exit where the old famous Collinsville flea market is at, which uh, I had went to many a time when I was kind of helping in the church and going to college up in northwest Georgia. Anyway, you go away from that and you have to travel about 30 minutes through the woods out into just a really rural area where it's basically just a bunch of fields, cows and cotton and corn and maybe some peanuts. And then finally, you know, I was following the GPS and I had the picture out of the book for backup. Well, what I had read in that book was don't rely on your GPS coordinates. We end up turning and we're going down this road, which is barely paved. And then, you know, it looks like it's dead ending in, in the middle of a gigantic cornfield. And I'm thinking, well, This ain't it. You know, we're going to go down here and meet our demise. (laughs) But uh, we pulled on up, and I was like, I think this is the church, you know. It doesn't resemble any kind of church I've ever seen. I don't remember ever seeing a sign. I don't believe they even have a sign, honest to goodness. I don't think they have a sign at all. Billy Summerford lives next door to his church in an old house. There's a lot of stuff around there. You know, Billy Summerford probably has scraped a living doing all sorts of manual labor and trades and stuff. And you can see from all the debris that's around this place, you know, that he probably has worked with his hands all of his life. It's this little white building. It's very simple looking. Imagine me and Dave going, having no idea if it was okay or not. (laughs) (laughs) And they had already started. The church had already started when we got there. You know, I was like, Dave, I think this is it. I looked at the picture again that I had on my phone, and I was like, this has to be it. We just kind of eased into the back row, and, you know, of course, everybody turned around and looked at us. I mean, both of us were super nervous. I mean, man, I know my stomach was just, you know, in rows. But, oh, Billy Summerford walks back. As soon as he seen us walk in, he comes back, and he puts his hand out, and he shakes my hand. This would have been at the height of the corona stuff, you know, and I'm just sitting back there like, oh, goodness, please don't let me catch the corona in here. But Billy Summerford comes back, and he shakes my hand, and he said, hey, let me see how tough your hands are. And I said, uh, sir, I did not come here to hold no snake, you know, because I, I was like, oh, my God, you know, this guy thinks I came here to hold a snake. I said, no, sir, I did not come here to hold no snake. And he just looked at me and then he started laughing and he said, no, I'm just playing with you, boys. He's like, I promise you that if we bring out snakes tonight, they'll be all up front. And he said, if you guys want to come up here and pray at the altar, just know that we won't bring out any snakes while you're up there. And I said, okay, that's good to know. And then he showed me his finger, and it was crippled. And he said, yeah, he said, a copperhead got me right here, and I can't even move this finger no more. And I said, whoa, that's too bad, you know. And then he just walked off, you know, and went back up to the front of the church. And now that's when the, the singing began, and it was game on. Okay. I think that brings us up to speed. Now tell us what happened tonight with the whole staring down thing. Every one of them sang. Every last one of them people that was there tonight, they got up and sang. Whether they could actually hold a tune or not, they sang. And so you could just imagine how it went. But then this lady got up and she's singing about one verse through. She uh, starts convulsing into a trance-like state. I mean, it looked like something off a scary movie. And she stares me down. I'm just three rows from the back. And I'm the only person in this area of the church. Everybody else is up front playing tambourines and kind of just walking around. I'm the only guy back there. She's looking dead ass. 
she's up there singing a song and she really wasn't that bad. And she's eyeballing me. I'm talking about dead stare. And this goes on for what feels like an eternity, but was probably actually like four or five minutes, somewhere around there. And while she's having this seizure thing, some of the other people in the church go up there, like the other ladies that are going up there, and they're holding her up. It appeared like she wasn't even in control of her body. And she's in a dead stare at me, and she's like saying, praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him, like she was having some kind of fit. I made eye contact with her, and I'm looking, I'm like, is she looking at me? What's going on there? And then you realize, yeah, she is looking at you. And then so I look away, you know, I'm like, okay, I'll break eye contact here. It's getting really weird. And then I look back up, and she's still staring at me, bro. And there's a copperhead right next to her. And so I start thinking, like, what if this lady in this tramp state having these little seizures picks up this snake and starts walking back here? All these men and the women in the church are like, bless her Lord, and like shouting her and like egging her own kind of. It was unnerving. It was unsettling, man. It did not feel right. It was the kind of spectacle that you would imagine in a horror movie, you know? You're in a church in the middle of a cornfield with 12 people. No cell phone service. You know, again, I, th this is going to be a recurring theme no matter where I end up. They're going to call me out. 230 miles northeast of Old Rock House Holiness Church, there's this small building tucked away in the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains. Should you see an address anywhere or like a GPS coordinates to it or anything? The location, Cock County, Tennessee. The small building, Edwina Church of God in Jesus' name. It was founded by the well-documented but enigmatic preacher and folk artist, Jimmy Morrow. I'm looking. Uh, can I put you on hold for a second? Yeah. Right now, Abe and Farrell are not looking for the Edwina Church of God in Jesus' name. Abe has arrived early for church service today at Jimmy Morrow's place. And so, he's using this time to attempt to locate the grave of one of the most decorated serpent handlers of all time, John Wayne Punkin Brown. For more than a decade and a half, Punkin Brown has been handling serpents. I take up serpents, it's all in the hands of God. If he wants to take me that way, that's fine. I just soon die that way. To those he says misunderstand his faith, he offered this to our news crew. Why would you have a religion that you wouldn't risk your life for? I have a link to something called findagrave.com uh, and uh, up in, I, I guess it's Cook County, Tennessee, I don't know how you pronounce it. C-O-C-K-E. It's Cock County. Like a fighting rooster. Oh, okay. All right. Cock County, Tennessee. John Wayne Punkin Brown, who claimed that his faith in God would keep him safe from the venomous snakes he handled, is now the subject of this graphic footage we're about to show you. A word of caution, this video is disturbing. In 1998, Punkin was bitten while guest preaching at Old Rock House Holiness Church. As you can see here, Punkin seems calm as he walks and preaches from the front of his church, a rattlesnake in his hands, until suddenly the snake turns and strikes the preacher. After a brief pause, the videotape footage resumes, and Punkin is seen lurching toward his congregants. They all gather around him until the moment that Punkin finally collapses. After a 10-minute struggle for his life, Punkin dies at the feet of his congregation. Word has it that Punkin and his wife, Melinda, are buried somewhere in these hills, not far from Jimmy Morris Church. About 10 miles as the crow flies over the craggy, chilly, shadow-drenched hills. As Abe's van winds through the desolate mountain roads that are all lined with old trailers and handmade shanties, Farrell attempts to navigate. But these searches lead to very few hits just a spattering of commentary from several discouraged seekers who tried and failed to find the elusive cemetery. Hey, on this website, they are fighting now in the comments section over snake handling. One person comes on and says, hey, does anyone know of a church around here that handles snakes? I think it would be fun to experience one. Another guy comes in and says, hey, not trying to be a d here, but be careful what you label as, quote, fun. As an agnostic in this highly dichotomous world and forum. Oh, God. 
Suddenly, Farrell gets a hit. Okay, I think I found something. It's the Holiness Church of God in Jesus' Name Cemetery. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Jimmy Morrow used to be the assistant pastor there. It ain't in operation no more, but it's Buford Tackberry there. Pumpkin Brown is, man. Oh, hell yeah. Do you want this link? As the search continues, 10 miles southeast, a prolific folk artist and serpent-handling preacher named Jimmy Morrow readies himself for the day sermon. It is what he does every Sunday before service. He climbs the mountain over his church, looks out over the valley, and he prays. Pam Morrow, the preacher's wife, awaits his return below. How often have you been bit by a snake? Twice, once in the... 98 He's there for the art. You were telling me the other day what it feels like to handle a serpent while you're preaching a message to your congregation. How does that feel? It felt like uh, just like a bucket of warm water is poured over. And sometimes the morning of God so, uh, so uh, you can see it as a blue mist of smoke in the congregation. Abe first told Farrell about Pastor Morrow weeks back, and this is what he had to say. If he wanted it, he would be a world-famous artist if he wanted it. He just don't want it. If somebody like at a gallery or somewhere in New York or one of these big art people decided that they found this dude, I mean, his stuff would, he would be rolling in the money, buddy. If you visit Abe's gallery on alabamaastronaut.com, you will see examples of his work, folk art like no other. It is bright colors painted onto black tar, with vivid images of often stoic characters carved into the tar. Each Abe Partridge painting seems to possess an urgent message to the viewer, mirroring the same sort of urgency that Jimmy Morrow's paintings seem to possess. It is no surprise, therefore, that Abe calls Jimmy Morrow, quote, his favorite artist in the world. Speaking to you now about the art of each painter, here is executive director and curator of the Alabama Contemporary Arts Center, Elizabeth Elliott, on Abe's paintings, as well as Dean of Fine Arts and Professional Programs at Mars Hill University, Dr. Rick Carey, on Pastor Morrow's work. The first work that I curated Abe into was an exhibition called Urban Wild. Folk artists traditionally are seen as being in rural spaces down long dirt roads with lots of tractor parts and tree branches to contend with. And that informs the shape of outcomes. Abe is a perfect case study in the sense that he lives in sort of the middle of nowhere in Mobile, out in the sticks, but he travels constantly to big city centers and he knows what's going on in the world. And he knows that he sits in between all of these spaces. He sits in between rural and urban, in between sort of rock stardom and complete obscurity. And his work sits in between those two things as well. Dr. Carey, you brought Jimmy Morrow out to Mars Hill University. How did Jimmy do in the gallery? Was it like a fish out of water or how did it go? Did he sell a bunch of pieces? First of all, let me say Jimmy's never a fish out of water. <laughs> I mean, he's Jimmy. If he was on Park Avenue in Manhattan, he would be doing just what he's doing right now in Del Rio, Tennessee, or as they say, Dario, Tennessee. But no, he was not looking to sell at that point. I tried to hook him up with a folk art gallery here in Asheville, and there are many other galleries that handle so-called, quote, outsider art. His stuff would fit right in and would be probably valuable in monetary terms, but he was not interested at that time. I think he's been selling probably quite a bit, but 
to individuals. The last time I talked to him anyway, he did not want to be out in the world. And I think he said it using terms very similar to that. Whether he knew it when he started or not, he was drawing from a long, very essential tradition of artists grabbing what is most available to them to try to tell the stories that are in them to tell. The tar on canvas technique, there's a handful of other folk artists that might use tar in their work, and I, it, his work isn't the only time I've seen roofing tar. He didn't go out and buy expensive oil paint or learn how to stretch canvases because those materials aren't actually going to be relevant to his life. They aren't relevant to his life. He said, I don't want to be out in the world. And uh, he doesn't have a checking account. Didn't, last time I saw him anyway, didn't have a checking account, didn't have a bank account. When you walk into Jimmy Morrow's sanctuary, how do you know at a glance when you look at all of those paintings on the wall that you are looking at art, that you are looking at something great? The color got me first. It was the best combination of orange and yellow, which is hard to do. And another was the subject. It was Joshua in the Valley of the Dry Bones. I enjoy music and uh, gospel Appalachian music. And there's a a song called uh, Joshua in the Valley of the Dry Bones, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. You may know the song. Toe and the foot bone, join together and the foot and the ankle bone, join together and the ankle bone. It reminded me of that song. What engages you might not engage me. Art picks you. Art engages you. The question about how do you know art is good? You define it as good when it engages you, and it's a happening. It's a thing that happens. Good art is something that is an event that happens between an artwork and a person. I run a white cube. In a big sense, art centers and art museums are sacred spaces the same way churches are. What we choose to lift up hails higher than what other people are able to lift up on their own. By virtue of putting something in our space on a pedestal, we are making an act of judgment and discernment and value, like we're assigning value and meaning by even doing that. I am conscious of it because I want to be very careful about that power and how that power is used and that we're not using it to create poverty porn tourism around subjects that are deeply personal to people and deeply relevant to communities well beyond the community they came from. Elizabeth, y'all are going to have a gallery for Abe at the Alabama Contemporary Arts Center, which of course we are very excited about here. And I know what his plans are. He's going to come into that space and he's going to attempt to make a sanctuary. There's going to be paintings of all of these characters, Jimmy Morrow, Cody Coots, Jamie Coots, Punkin' Brown, all of them. He's going to be bringing the subject of serpent handling to his hometown of Mobile, which used to be my hometown, which is where you are now located. Knowing all that you know, how do you think Mobilians are going to take it, all this serpent handling business? I think Mobilians are going to know exactly what to do with it. The importance of this work is that it's fundamentally an act of communication. It tells us really important things about what life is like in these specific geographies and these specific ideologies and these communities. But that information also extends beyond the borders of that specific community because there are essential human elements that are really meaningful and really important to lift up. One more thing. There are certain places that Dennis Covington is not welcome. You know, it's real funny you say that. I was just talking to Abe a couple of days ago, and he was telling me about an apology that Dennis Covington is said to have given for his work or something. So we had both heard something about it, but we really don't know much about it at the moment. But it is interesting you say that. He's kind of a persona non grata, and I don't know exactly why. At some point, I think he started handling in services himself, and it may be that, and it may have to do with Elvis Presley Sailor. Have you run across that name? We sure did, yes. You're getting into it on a different level than I did, so I'm just kind of saying tread carefully there, and we'll see if we can't find out what's what. The afternoon passes and Abe never calls. Farrell cannot tell if it's the shoddy cell phone service or if Abe ever found the gravesite. 
Did he even make it to Jimmy Morrow's church service at 1 p.m.? If so, did Pastor Morrow call him out from the pulpit for trying to record the service? Late in the afternoon, however, Farrell's phone rings. You still alive? Dude, that road, that was the right road. But there's no way that you would ever be... You have to pull on the side of the road, then you have to walk up the mountain by foot. We had to walk a good hundred yards up the side of a mountain that, you know, you have to, like, walk 15 steps and then stop and catch your breath, that kind of thing. We? Are you recording? Yeah. He took me to the grave. He got in my car, and we just drove about half an hour to Pumpkin Brown and Melinda Brown and Jimmy Ray Williams and Jimmy Ray Williams Jr. grave. He took me to the very spot where the Holiness Church of God and Jesus' name used to stand, and he told me some of the history of it that can't go on the record. It can't go on our podcast. He buried every single one of them people up there. And he hasn't been back since he put Pumpkin Brown in the grave in 1998. That's the first time he's been back to the grave site. And he did it with me. He said, man, I don't know what it is about you. He's like, I don't ever do this with people, man. He's like, there's been a lot of people asking me to take the place. And he's like, I never do this. But, you know, you got a good spirit and I trust you. I said, Mr. Morrow, you could be a very rich man with your art if you would allow someone to help you market it. And uh, he's like, I ain't got no interest in that. He's like, I ain't got no interest in being rich. He's like, only reason I paint is to spread the word of God. That's what makes it good, really, is just because it's like complete purity. So he took me to the graveyard today. I'm, I'm riding back up there right now. I, I want to get a better look. You going to take your handheld? I'm going to take it up there, yeah. It's like we're on the top of a remote mountaintop. There's a stream that runs right by where the church used to be. There's an old rusted out Jeep over here. That was the stream that Buford Pack immersed himself in after drinking a whole half mason jar full of strychnine before he died. Listen to the spring. This is, uh, this is Carson Springs. So you gotta pull on the side of the road, then you gotta hop a fence, and then you gotta walk a hundred yards up the side of a mountain to find their grave. All I could think is just like, it's just a perfect picture of faith, that type of faith place and society, you know? Satan, your kingdom must come down. Next time on Alabama Astronaut, Abe visits Jimmy and Pam Morrow at their home to see if they were willing to sing songs from their faith into his handheld recorder. Jimmy just might be willing to give Abe more than just a song. Also, as the story continues, so does Abe's dialogue with episode two's Cody Coots. Cody and I have been in constant contact ever since the day I was at his house. You know, he wrote me today and he was saying that he wants to make an album. So he's like, but I don't know anybody that does that. And I was like, well, I know lots of people that do that. The book titles referenced today are as follows. Salvation on Sand Mountain by Dennis Covington. This show will reach out to Mr. Covington before it's all over. Mr. Covington is Professor Emeritus of Creative Writing at Texas Tech University, or he was until about two years ago. Considering his most recent social media post dated around that time in 2019, it seems he may be in a period of radio silence. But we will certainly do all that we can to catch up with him and get his thoughts on the matter, to ask him about the supposed apology at Old Rock House Holiness Church that Abe has been hearing so much about. Also, the book of maps that Abe described in this episode is from a book called In the House of the Serpent Handler, a story of faith and fleeting fame in the age of social media by Julia Dean. This will be a book of relevance in future conversations. If you would like to start diving in, Julia and her recent article in National Geographic, as well as her book, are all on a collision course with the indefatigable Abe Partridge. Finally, we would like to thank our newfound friends, which are actually Abe's old friends, Willie Moe, his real name is Morgan Hammond, and guitarist Dave Garrett. Thank you for allowing us to ride on your shoulders, you two. It gives us all a glimpse of Abe and his element. 
Special thanks to our two experts today, Dr. Rick Carey from Mars Hill University, and also Elizabeth Elliott, curator and organizer of the Alabama Contemporary Arts Center. Music today by Dave Garrett, the Psych Peas, and stellar banjo tunes by our own Abe Bartridge, not to mention the wonderful song Brush Arbor by Will Stewart, the song that started it all. As always, we Alabama astronauts would like to thank the people of Old Rock House Holiness Church for their hospitality stories and for encouraging our return. We, of course, will take them up on their offer. Until next time, make sure you visit alabamaastronaut.com. There you will find extended interviews, ancillary episodes, field recordings, pictures, videos, and of course, songs upon songs upon songs. Also, make sure to check out the bonus content tab on the website. Members can get access to the ancillary episode corresponding to today's episode that features audio of yet another crazy story that Abe has to tell. You can find it all there at alabamaastronaut.com. See you next time.